0: Means wishing you the energy of a dragon and horse, Long Ma Ting And finally, Samsung Si Sing. Whatever your heart wants will come true there you have it. A few phrases for the Lunar New Year. And on with this week's program, we have American boy band, Why Don't We? And we'll also hear about a movement we should all be a part of, and that is the Street Cleaning Appreciation Week. But first, let's start with some thoughts on some local COVID-19 measures. On Tuesday's back chat, Hugh Chiverton and Ada Wong spoke to Benjamin Cowling, head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics from the School of Public Health from the University of Hong Kong about his thoughts on how we're doing at the moment in terms of controlling the virus.
1: On average, over the past couple of months, the numbers have been coming down. They're now in the twenties, to thirties every day. Uh, I, w- I would guess after Chinese New Year there might be a small bump, just as we had after Christmas and the the, the, the New Year. But in general, we are on the right trajectory. We're going down towards zero, and once we get to zero, I think we'll see some of the public health measures being lifted. But it's taken longer to get the fourth wave uh, over than it took us to get the third wave over. And, and why
2: is that, Professor Cowling?
1: I think there's, there's probably the most likely reason is the fatigue. So uh, I've been doing some, some studies, collecting some data in Hong Kong over the past year on how people are behaving. And um, One of the things we've noticed in the past few months is that people aren't uh, as compliant with the recommendations to, to stay at home, to avoid crowded areas. Um, to avoid social gatherings they 're not as compliant now as they maybe we have been in the past, um, and you can see that when you when you go out in Hong Kong, you see there 's more people about If you think back to March, April, it was like a ghost town, even in June, June, and July, a lot of people were staying at home in the peak of the third wave, and now in the fourth wave, I think there 's a bit of fatigue, so that that does mean that, that it 's going to take longer to to bring the numbers down to zero
2: and is the government's um, sort of like ambush lockdown measures, uh, do you think it's working?
1: Uh, so you, you said working, but I'm not really sure what the, what the intended outcome is. I haven't heard a clear explanation of the, the whole concept. Um, what we've seen in the past year is a lot of clusters of COVID cases. You remember the dance hall cluster, the ballroom dancing cluster, uh, going back to July there were, there were quite a few clusters. Going back to be- the beginning in March, we had the bar and band cluster. There's been a lot of clusters of infections, but very rarely have we seen clusters of infections around a single housing estate where there have been previous cases. I think the Lycun estate comes to my mind in, in June last year when there were uh, some cases in that particular housing estate. But in general, in the past year, we haven't seen clusters in housing estates, of course, within households. There are. There, there's a lot of transmission in Hong Kong has been from one household member to another. But beyond a household in a single flat, we really haven't seen a lot of transmission in housing estates. Of course, there are these these old buildings with the sewage problems, maybe, or the, the ventilation issues. Uh, and, and there have been small numbers of cases linked to those in those old buildings. But in general, I, I don't really understand the rationale, because if there was a case last week in my building it doesn't mean that there's likely to be an outbreak this week in my building the same as if i go to play the mark six i'm not going to 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 go to the betting shop where the, the winner placed the bet last week you know the, these things there's a lot of chance a, a big element of chance in in where cases can be found and they tend to cluster by social setting by by social group by occupational group not so much by the housing estate by where people live
2: so so in essence if we really want the cases to come down quickly uh we have to stay at home more during the holidays th- uh, th- yes, there's no, so there's sure. no I, other I, way
1: but, yeah i i'm worried that at chinese new year there's going to be a, a lot of social gatherings and that's going to give a lot of opportunities for outbreaks to occur we've we've seen all along in the past year outbreaks occurring at social gatherings um i, I remember one recently where there was a, a medical doctor or their family had a family gathering and there were quite a lot of cases came out of that, maybe two or three months ago. Um, so it, it, it's really a, a concern because of Chinese New Year, because we haven't got the cases down to zero. I think targeted testing of uh, maybe more, uh, groups of people that are more likely to be infected, like the, the, the third runway workers, um, maybe like some other occupational groups, that, that's certainly going to be worthwhile. But I, I, I'm still not convinced about the rationale of these ambush lockdowns.
3: OK. Uh, what about the, um, uh, putting the 130 schoolchildren into uh, quarantine? This is after two pupils uh, who took part in an exam were, were, were tested uh, positive. Uh, what do you think about that as a measure?
1: Uh, it's pretty proactive. I'm not sure if any of those 130 children actually got infected. If there had been a few more infections detected in that group, then I, I can understand why it would be done. But just with two children when their only exposure was in the exam room and everybody was wearing masks, it seems very kind of proactive, really, really being very, very cautious. My suspicion, my expectation is that none of those 130 children would actually have been infected, and so they're going to have 14 days of peace and quiet uh, in, a, in a quarantine facility.
3: Yeah, so, so I mean, they're, so they counted as close contacts. Is that that make that's the difference? Yeah, is but it?
1: under the CHP guidelines, if you wear a mask and the person who is infected wore a mask as well, then you can't be a close contact. Um, so I'm not sure how these these uh, these students were, were classified as close contacts. It, I'm not sure if, if maybe they weren't wearing masks. But I, that's it's not what um, I've
2: heard. I understand it's an exam setting in a hall, and um, the the seats and the tables and chairs were were like at least a meter apart. So, so that that sounds pretty okay, to you. Or were
1: they wearing masks?
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, under the CSP definition of close contacts. Yeah. If the infected person and the contact were both wearing masks, then it's not a close contact; it's a other contact, not a close contact. And and typically, those people are not sent to quarantine.
3: H- how, what, what are the rules? I mean, I've just been told. I, I really don't know, but I've been told that, for example, in, in RTHK, if there is a case on a particular floor of the of, of the building, uh, then we can't go back to work until we are, we've got to stay at home basically until we and have a test. Until we have a negative test, we can't we can't resume work. But there's no talk about, about quarantine. Is that sort of standard?
1: Yeah, that's right. So that would be a, an RTHK policy. I think a lot of companies would have policies like that, that if there's a, a, a case in, in the in the workplace, in the building, then you'd be very, very cautious. And And I think a lot of companies will arrange testing in, in that circumstance, the quarantine is done by the Center for Health Protection. So mm. that's a separate process that if you know if someone had been on your show in, in the studio without wearing a mask, you hadn't been wearing a mask, then you, you, you might well find yourself being sent to quarantine camp. But if you're wearing a mask and the guest is wearing a mask, then you wouldn't be classified as a close contact. So you wouldn't be sent to quarantine.
3: Right. I mean, and practically in Hong Kong, everyone wears a mask all the time, except, I guess, for sort of social occasions and for eating and drinking. Yeah, in and drinking.
1: And in social settings. Yeah. So that's why the number of people sent to quarantine camp has been so low all along. It's only been, I think, the average per case is probably two or three people. Oh, right. Sent to quarantine. So that's basically the close family members and, and maybe a, a close social contact. And there are also difficulties in contact tracing because the interview goes along the lines of who have you met without wearing a mask? And then the, the case would have to say where they haven't been wearing a mask and, and the people they've met who haven't been wearing masks, so you can imagine there's, there's going to be an element of, of reporting bias, uh, you know, some, some subjectivity in how people decide to report where they've been and, and when they haven't been wearing a mask.
0: And that was Professor Benjamin Cowling from the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong on Tuesday's Back Chat. On Wednesday's One Two Three show, I caught up with Jeff Rotmeier from Impact Hong Kong, a local charity that advocates for and aims to make a positive impact for the homeless community in Hong Kong. Jeff tells us about the movement that he started called the Street Cleaners Appreciation Week and how we all can be a part of it.
4: You know, in getting to getting on these walks, you meet a lot of street cleaners and then you really seek very clearly the amount of work that they do each and every day. Um, and just through these walks, these kindness walks, just got to know them and and when you're outside showing care to the homeless, it doesn't you just bring extra stuff and we also started caring for them as well.
0: Exactly. Why is it important to sort of reach out to this group? I feel like this group is we often say, Oh, our street cleaners, you know, they do so much, but there's not a lot of recognition for them. What's your thoughts on this? Sure.
4: Yeah, so true. I mean, we do we do work with the schools. You know, I do, I used to be a teacher, so I go into the schools quite often with Impact HK and educating about, you know, the importance of showing kindness to people in need. And um, one question I can very simply ask students and yourselves is, you know, if somebody's helping you each and every day, you know, should you appreciate that? Right? It's like the Easiest question ever, like all the students are like, yeah, of course, perfect, makes perfect sense, right? Um, and then I ask, okay, what about the street cleaners? And they're like, Ooh, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, these individuals are outside helping us every day. They're pretty much all between the ages of 60 and 80 years old. Um, they're paid very unfairly, in my opinion. They work every single day. Um, I think they're only allowed one day off a month. So it's a, it's a community that's definitely unfairly treated and they help us every day. So it's it's really our goal in society to care for people and stand up for others who are unfortunately held back.
0: Absolutely. Um, where did this idea come from? I mean, to, to start a day on social media, and I think it's received a lot of traction every year. There's always, always a Facebook event and everybody's just sort of likes it and says, yes, I'm, I'm in. Um, how did this idea come to you to start a day on a social media campaign?
4: It just, Impact HK is just a really cool charity because it's just been involved like thousands, you know, thousands of really caring people in Hong Kong. And, and when you have that many people coming together uh, with a focus on caring and standing up for people in our city, you know, sky's the limit. You know, we can we can accomplish great things. And I think highlighting, you know, the plight of the street cleaners in Hong Kong is, is definitely going well. I think it stands out to people. It's not a financial incentive for us to make a day like this as a charity. It's not going to pay our bills, but it does really encourage people in society to stand up and care for others and that's what we want them to do for the homeless as well
0: yeah jeff you made a oh by the way we are on facebook live as well for our listeners feel free to join us there noreen Meir on rthk radio 3 you'll be able to hear and see jeff there and feel free to comment and and let us know your thoughts uh, about how you uh, commemorate and how you celebrate street cleaners um you mentioned a really good point that, you know, these street cleaners aren't being paid a lot. Many of them are perhaps on minimum wage. And the government has just announced that they're freezing minimum wage, which doesn't just mean for for, for the next two years. But for the next four years, these people are being paid the same amount, um, not catching up with inflation. They're being paid $37.5 an hour. Um, that really is a, a sin in the city, you know, against a backdrop of such a rich um, society. Um I guess the question is, um, I never thought to give out licey money to street cleaners. You know, you give it out to your security guards in your building and and people that you see in in the office. Um, How do you sort of overcome that nervousness of approaching um, a stranger and and to people who really help help us every day, help keep our city clean?
4: Yeah, I want to touch on, on this before, though, the minimum wage aspect. You know, I really highly doubt that they're getting minimum wage, because I think if you look at the amount of hours that they work per week, uh, and per month. It's insane. I mean, it's every single day. Um, I see the same individuals every day here, especially in Taikok Choi. We're really good friends with the street cleaning community, and they're working tirelessly every day. Um, they're also eating in their workplace. They're treated unfairly, so there's a lot. Of, I think, you know, I'm not exactly sure on what they're paid, but I know, you know, around that, around that $14,000 range is quite typical. If we're talking a 30-day month, you know, I've, I have a tough time believing that they're getting paid uh, above minimum wage. Wow. Um regarding you know, regarding the yeah, walking up to strangers and passing a product. I mean, it's not a it's not a normal thing to do. Like if I was walking downtown central and some dude came up to me with a banana or something, I'd be like, Whoa, you know, get away from me. But you know, it's not normal. So when people reject, you know, your offering, you know, that's normal. It's not that's not their fault. We don't blame people for rejecting offering if we offer someone a hard-boiled egg or an invitation to our center and they don't want it well that's that's fine you know and that's not that's not their fault because they deny it but you know in getting to know individuals we realize it's not a pride thing it's a trust thing and you know it's difficult to trust someone offering you something on the streets right yeah. uh, but I think you'll find in, in I'm pretty good at it now I've been doing it for about seven years on the street so I've got my technique and I think a good smile and a Good Nihao, or you know, Josan, you know, a really good, open, caring voice, and and you know, get your camera away. Don't don't take your camera out. Don't don't uh, don't photograph these individuals by doing so. Um, make sure that they understand. That the only reason you're passing that to them is because you care.
0: And that was Wednesday's 123 show. If you enjoyed the interview, then you can always go to my Facebook page, Noreen Mayer, on RTHK Radio 3, to watch the rest of the interview in its video format. And now to Wednesday's Morning Brew. Phil Whelan talked to New York Times bestselling author Gabrielle Glaser about her new book, American
5: Baby. The book tells the twin stories of um, my late friend, David Rosenberg, who was an adoptee, mm-hmm. who met with his birth mother, reunited with his birth mother when he was 52 years old after a DNA test reunited them. Mm. Um, She had looked for her son essentially since she was forced to give him up in New York State in 1961 when she was a teenage mother. And just to set the stage, that was the absolute smack dab of the baby boom in the United States and elsewhere. Premarital sex was extremely common. Basically, everybody was doing it. And yet it was illegal in New York State. Birth control was out of the question, even for any married couples.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Abortion was illegal. And sex education was non-existent. And unwed motherhood in the years after World War II skyrocketed. And girls who got pregnant were sent away to secluded maternity homes. They were forced to surrender their children into a predatory adoption system that was really a gigantic nationwide big business. Mm. And so I document the stories, the twin stories of these two people, uh, David Rosenberg, who lived his life as an adoptee, Mm. beloved by his adoptive parents, and he loved them as well. But meanwhile, his birth mother did everything she could to try to keep him, and nevertheless was coerced into relinquishing him as a minor in New York State.
2: Okay, well, I know somebody that this happened to, and the reasons were rather different, but long Mm -hmm. story short, the person uh, suffered the effects of this for an entire life. Um, I think it was in the late 50s, uh, it was in the UK, so there are American servicemen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know the rest—flings, one nights, mm. whatever—and along comes uh, a son who was removed by the person's mother, uh, because in English parlance, oh, we don't do that. What would the what would the neighbours say? Kind of thing. Slightly different to story to yours, because I don't think it was about the law. But long story short, it impacted this person and her family, and I guess the babies, when grown up family for the rest of her life
5: absolutely and also it was very much about what the neighbors said yeah all right same 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 here it was about the neighbors and the you know other family members and oh good god how could you and the impacts of this as you say about this person Mm -hmm. who you know are well documented it wasn't just the person you know they were well documented worldwide actually in england the uh, there was there's a great deal of research about this okay. because um, social workers is, opened the laws in 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 the UK about secret birth certificates. There was a whole complicated uh, rigmarole about children who were born quote unquote out of wedlock getting original birth certificates sealed, and when they were adopted, amended ones issued in their their stead. That listed their adoptive name and their their adoptive parents as their original mother and father.
2: So it's a real industry, as you say.
5: Absolutely. And there was an industry of secrecy about this as well. And the effects on the women who were forced to give birth in secret are lifelong.
2: Well, you imagine being, I'm assuming, perhaps a late teen uh, woman, which I guess was the case mm-hmm. a lot of times or in the 20s. Either way, Um, this was just devastating. But a simple question for you here. Do you think parents were harder in those days? We hear these stories about how people were tougher in times gone by. But for a mother to say, no, I'm taking this baby.
5: Oh, I think the shame of having a child out of wedlock, in the out of wedlock. And I say that, you know, in quotes, out of what, who uses that language? So it's not the age, it's the wedlock. It's the wedlock, but it was the age. It was the age because in those years, single motherhood was absolutely unforgivable prior to the establishment of a growing middle class that was coming along in the UK, booming Mm. in coming along in the UK more slowly because of the after effects of the war. Which were devastating in England, um. and less so in less so in the United States, where there was a middle class post war economy that was booming, right. and suddenly the conformity about creating being creating a family only close to hearth and home that was simply not acceptable. In the years before the war, if you had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. You out of wedlock again? I say those
2: words. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying them too. It it does what it says on the tin. We know exactly, you know, right? The stigma. And
5: but if if you had gotten pregnant in the 20s and 30s before the war, boom, you had a shotgun wedding, and Uh. six months later, six months later, goodness gracious, goodness gracious, what a miracle! You had a seven-pound premature baby who had been born at six months, and nobody blinked an eye.
2: So you weren't kind of vilified. You were semi-accepted and sorted out.
5: Right, exactly. Wink, wink, wink. Got it. You know, Go people ahead. were counting, but uh, nobody was counting that right. that
2: closely. One more question about the time there. So, again, I can only talk about the country I come from, where, um, you know, Mother the mother was in charge of all kind of baby type, et cetera, things. Father didn't really have anything to do with it. So mother, after daughter gives birth at a young age to a son or daughter, yanks the son or daughter and the rest we know, um, do you think they ever thought the impact that that would have on them for the rest of their lives with this daughter? Or, or did sort of the, the morals of the time actually come first?
5: The morals of the time came first. And the daughter deserved what she got wow. because she had misbehaved. She had uh, she had had sex outside of marriage, which in England didn't happen. Kidding, okay. of course it did happen. But you know, if you believe if, uh, Alfred Kinsey, who was conducting sexual surveys of Americans at the time, identified and cataloged the fact that. Most men, by far, most men, and more than half of women, had had premarital sex, and yet it was something so didn't, shameful. Didn't one didn't it. talk about
2: it. Was is there any merit in suggesting that the forties and fifties, times of various conflicts when servicemen from one country were in another, that the figures went up, or is that just a generalisation?
5: Oh. It's not a general generalisation, and in fact, part of it was part of the early. Simmering of the sexual revolution. We like to think this that the sexual revolution was happening in the late 1960s, but yeah. in fact it was beginning during the war.
2: It just didn't and have that, a title and a groovy correct, thing about it.
5: Correct, correct. People weren't talking about it, but it was definitely happening. Okay. There were was drinking and and, and socializing going see. on. <laughs> co-ed.
2: I'm talking to Gabriel Glazer about her brand new book, American Baby. If you joined us on Facebook Live, I've put the cover up for you now there. I mean, it just, this this goes wham-bam and hits you between in the eyes, two footprints. Uh, do join us on Morning Brew's Facebook Live and uh, find out a little bit more. Can we, can we turn to the book now? I'd like you to just say anything you like about it.
5: What the book, what I'd like the book to identify and, and tell, uh, educate people about is that million American women were forced to surrender their sons and daughters into this predatory adoption system that was, actually, it was an adoption industrial complex. And the babies were the product, the birth mothers were the means of production, and the adoptive parents who got caught in this web of desiring a family in the post war years mm. were also victimized by the lies told on each side by adoption agencies, which made fancy destinations. Uh, sound like they were terrific ideas for the birth mothers, and which made the birth mothers sound like they were all aspiring young doctors who just simply couldn't manage to raise these children. Mm-hmm. And over to you, you're the you're the proper middleman, and mm. you can make the right decision. So
2: one person we haven't talked about in this business. Is God. You remember the movie Philomena? Again, a totally different place and time, but that was a massive industry. Tracy Kwan talked about that in detail. Does does that figure in your conversation, your dialogue?
5: Absolutely. What happened in the United States is really very much what they call themselves, these birth mothers, are the American Philomenas. And I thought at the beginning of my research that this sort of cool, moralistic attitude toward unwed mothers... Really was sort of self limiting to to the cold, moralistic Irish Catholic Church mm. that is absolutely not the case that extended on the other side of the Atlantic to Australia, to Canada. It was a worldwide phenomenon it wasn't just it wasn't just Philomena Lee in Ireland who was forced to work off her the debts of her room and board for her stay while she was pregnant and the labor and delivery of her son. This was a worldwide, worldwide phenomenon, as I
2: said. In your research, did you ever get to talk to the elderly mother who made the decision to yank the baby all those years ago? And if you did, did she say, I did the right thing or the wrong thing?
5: I was unable to talk to those women because they are are long since passed. I did, however, interview a number of social workers who were in the adoption field who knew at the time when they were trying to convince young women, just carry right along. You're going to forget this. You're going to have children of your own one day. Mm. That's actually what they told these women. You're going to have children of your own one day. Forget about it. You Just don't look back. You, 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 You can just really... Just forget this ever happened.
0: And that was Wednesday's Morning Brew. Finally, let's end today's show with Alison Howe's Common Room, where this whole week she caught up with American boy band Why Don't We. The videos for her interview are also up on the Radio 3 homepage, so be sure to check them out too. So let me say Joy Geen and Gong Hei Fa Choi some songs seizing. Here is Alison Howe chatting with Why Don't We.
7: Joy Geen. Yes, yeah, so good to see you guys. Jonah and Zach back in the house. I feel like if we keep hanging out like this, we're just gonna have to bring you over to Hong Kong, which is,
4: yeah. no, We're to have you in
7: person. Totally, <laughs> so congratulations. I know that the new album is happening. What a perfect description of the last year. Feels like there were more bad ones than good ones, though. Yeah,
6: uh, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Probably, Probably, yeah. So we started writing this album, like, before COVID happened on tour. So that was more of the good times. And then once COVID happened, uh, it was it was easier to write about more of, like, the anxiety sides of things or the breakup side of things. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, 2020 wasn't the best year, but we made the best of it and tried to be creative. Yeah.
7: And the outcome is amazing. I'm loving everything they've been releasing so far. Thank
6: you so much. It's been great. I mean, we're so proud of it. We're so happy to have it out. It's like our baby has been
7: released. Oh. So <laughs> walk me through the different songs that we have access to so far. I mean, first of all, Fallen Adrenaline, I know there's a new AB6 kind of feature to it. How did that come about?
6: Yeah, um, so Fallen came, actually, the, that was the last song we wrote on the whole album. Um, we had nothing else done. Uh, and went in to write a different song, actually. And Daniel pulled up to the studio with uh, the melody of Fallen in his head, and a little bit of a beat started. And then we just wrote Fallen really quickly. It came out really easily. Um and like he, an hour. Yeah, it was about an hour. Wow. Um, yeah, that one just felt really special and it felt like a great way to open up the album with those big drums right in the beginning and yeah. it felt like a good intro to the album if you're the first time listening You like, you know, gets everyone excited. It felt like, um, a, like a good single sort of yeah. yeah. It was like perfect. And then it was really cool that A B six decided to hop on it. Yeah, they, that was crazy. They said they, they really like liked the song and they wanted to you know, do a remix of it. We were excited about that because we're such big, big fans of K-pop. So it was like just so exciting that they were going to do something. So it was fun. It was fun to hear what they did. And um, I saw that they posted like a behind the scenes of their studio day making it too. So that was interesting too to like see them.
7: That's so awesome. I mean, that intro just gets all the screaming happening. I would imagine this being the opener of like your tour when it happens again. Yeah, we'll we'll
6: see. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know the the order yet, but we'll see. nothing but you and I 뛰는 심장이 말을 듣지 않아 but like this 절만의 promise 내 곁에 있었죠 사실은 나도 나를 잘 모르지만 그게 나요